You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this two-part podcast with Ross Tucker, who's from the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. He is an elite scientist as well as a terrific athlete and a coach of champions. And so he brings everything that we want for BJSM listeners, scientific expertise, practical experience, and he has a great ability to tie those things together. Welcome, Ross. Thanks, Cam. It's cool to chat. And uh, Ross is at the University of Cape Town. He's also part of the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. And Ross, let's just launch into the Olympics. Um, what are the exciting things that you're looking forward to? Well, the Olympics are always, um, for me, like every four years, it's the highlight of four years because I think they're such a great platform to talk about science. Um, it's difficult to look at London and know exactly where those cool stories are going to come from, but they will. Uh, if you just look back at Beijing, you had the swimsuits, um, which basically cleared out all swimming's world records in, in Beijing four years ago. You had Usain Bolt. How much faster could he have gone? And that was a really cool scientific question. How much faster can humans go? Then there are the questions about why Jamaicans and Americans win the sprints, why Kenyans and Ethiopians win the distance races. There are loads of questions always around the environment, the heat and the pollution and so on in Beijing was a big deal, maybe less important in London. But I think it's those kinds of things that will be really cool to discuss because the Olympics, when you take thousands of the world's best athletes and you put them into that kind of situation, you're, you're going to get amazing questions and opportunities to use them as almost a platform to launch into what I think is really interesting sports science for the public and to try and explain it to them. So I think it's going to be, for two weeks, it's just going to be non-stop uh, questions that come out of it and, and hopefully someone's got some answers. And Ross, let's talk about the how fast can you go and what makes a champion story, probably using Usain Bolt um, in the first instance, but obviously with Blake coming up now. Tell us your thoughts on those questions and the stories around uh, Jamaican athletes. Every time Usain Bolt breaks a world record, which has been twice, um, th these papers come out and they say the limit is 9.51 and then another one comes out and says it's 9.40 and so on. So it's always cool, uh, cool discussion topics, but I honestly don't know what that limit would be. For me, what's really interesting is to look at those athletes as an illustration of what it takes to succeed and um, speed especially. I mean, I know that there's a search also for the equivalent genetic factors that explain the Kenyan uh, and Ethiopian dominance of long-distance running. But I'm most fascinated by the Jamaicans because uh, certainly in my work with, with sport and athletes, coaches always say that you can, you can train endurance, but you can't teach speed. And so that seems to me to be the kind of uh, physical attribute or quality that lends itself to some innate genetic predisposition and when you start looking at where the last uh, six or seven 100 meter champions have come from, when you look at the top 100 meter times and you see this extraordinary concentration of amazing athletes from one small area um, and then you get into the anthropological debate that they all came from West Africa uh, and the strongest might have survived and so on, I think that's a fascinating question and, and I think it, it captures very well the argument that we made in that paper, the, the one you mentioned, what makes champions, because there's this line of thought that um, success in sport or elite athleticism is something that is purely born, 
and that's now been challenged to say by a lot of people that it's actually purely made in that <laughs> there's no such thing as talent it's all about training and what we wanted to do was to say that actually uh, both are as important and you can't have success without both of those factors pretty much in their maximal amounts and so then you look at Jamaica and you say that if there's some genetic factor there then that has clearly been maximized by the culture, the environment, the education and the sporting system of that uh, island. If it's a if you start from the point of view saying that it's the uh it's the culture and the historical success of Jamaican sprinters that causes their success, well then it's also incomplete because you have to say that there are many countries that have had history and historical uh, success like that but they don't produce those athletes anymore. And so I think it's tells the story really nicely of a combination of genetic factors meeting with training to make the most of what is just an extraordinarily rich gene pool, one which we haven't yet identified, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it, it will exist. And, and uh, as, as we <coughs> improve our ability to study those genes, and particularly those single nucleotide polymorphisms, I'm convinced that we'll find some uh, genetic predisposition to speed. And, Ross, there was always the magic bullet gene theory where there was going to be one gene to explain these things. What's your understanding of the reality in a complex task like sprinting, yeah. alone, a thing like football or um, multi-sport events? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about one gene to explain something as complex as speed, when you, if you break down 100-meter performance and you think about how many physiological systems and how many different uh, attributes are required to run 100 meters in 9.6 or 9.7 seconds, the idea that there could be one gene that affects all those systems is, to me, it's just a massive oversimplification. And you look at height. Height is something that's fairly well established to be heredit uh, hereditary. Um, but you and so, so studies have been done showing, for example, that 80% of height can be explained genetically. But it takes 295,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms to account for about 45% of the variance in height, and that's that's a what is really a one-dimensional property of height. So when you take something like that and you say, well, how much more complex then might something like uh, speed, power? the ability to sustain top speeds for the last 40 meters of a race, these things must be so complex that anyone who's looking for one gene is uh, is on a futile mission. It just cannot be one thing. And I think that's why nothing's been found. But I would argue that the, that the fact that it hasn't been found doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that we're incapable of finding that interaction between all the different genes and the environment that is required. Now, the 10,000 hours is the other side of this, as you, as you mentioned in, in colloquial discussion. And in your paper, you make the point that that's an interesting concept, but the number isn't something that people should hang their head on. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, the 10,000 hours thing, <clears throat> I don't know whether many people in sport know this because it's become thrown around very commonly. Um, but the, the, the actual origin of that number uh, can be traced back to a study done in the early 90s by Anders Ericsson where he had a group of violinists fill in questionnaires and then he judged their performance level and managed to show that the best performing violinists at the age of 20 had accumulated 10,000 hours, that those who were merely good were at about 8,000 and it got progressively lower as the quality of the, of the violinist got lower. And the the problem with that of course, is that you can't talk in averages when you're trying to find elite athletes because you don't take a sample of 100 people and hope that an average one emerges to win you a medal. 
And when you actually start looking at the individual variance and the range and the spread of that data, you pretty soon discover that even if the average is 10,000 hours, there are some people who get to that expert or elite performance level on far less than 10,000 hours. And there are other people who take 25, 30,000 hours and they still don't get there. So there have been studies in chess that have found that the average time it takes to become a master's level chess player is 11,000 hours. So that's cool for those who believe in the 10,000 hour concept. But within that group, there was one chess player who got there within 3,000 hours and there was another one who'd done 25,000 hours and still wasn't there. So I think the, the existence of those exceptions really in that case disproves the rule. And that's why I think it's so dangerous to hang your hat on this 10,000 hour concept because especially in sports, I mean, we're talking violin and chess and darts. That's where the studies had been done. In sport, where there are physiological qualities, attributes like height, speed, strength, and size, where we are far more convinced that there's a genetic link, that spread of, call it responders and non-responders, or elite athletes and non-elite athletes, will be even larger. And so anyone who's involved in sport, if you believe in 10,000 hours, what you're basically saying is that you no longer need to invest in talent identification because all you need to do is make sure that everyone trains enough and they all become elite. And anyone who's coached, anyone who's been a parent, anyone who's been involved in sport, I think intuitively knows that that's not the case. And so what you have to do practically is you have to find the person who is most likely to become an elite athlete and then you have to expose them to that uh, that pathway, call it of management, coaching, training, sports science, sports medicine, and produce your Olympic athletes. So when you look backwards and you look at the elite athletes, you will always find that they train hard. You will always find that they had role models when they were younger. You will always find that they had a great coach, that they had the opportunity. But what you will also find is that they are just exceptionally set apart almost to become elite athletes. I honestly believe that's what the science is saying, is that it's the combination of opportunity and genetics. And, and if you commit to a 10,000-hour concept, you are putting blinkers on and missing so much. And it, to me, it's just an inefficient way to go about trying to identify talents. Ross, switching to sports drinks, um, you've had experience with that as a scientist and you've been involved in coaching and, and helping guide athletes to do their best. What's the current take on this area and can it make a critical difference to performance? Yeah, you see, the <laughs> the problem with sports drinks is that there are two voices in this uh, in this landscape. There's the voice of scientists, and then there is the voice of the commercial companies and the industry that is driving sports drinks. And the problem in the past has been that I think those voices have overlapped. And you guys recently had a, a fairly extensive report describing some of those commercial interests and how they've influenced the scientific opinion. And and I think people should take note of that because when when our respected opinion leaders or thought leaders start to advocate for something, if you can trace back that there are conflicts of interest that might influence their advocacy, I think that's a very worrying situation. And, and that's where sports drinks find themselves now is because we've known, I think, for the last 30 years almost, as a result of um, Professor Tim Noakes' work, in a big event that we have here in South Africa, the Comrades Ultramarathon. It's an 87-kilometer or about mid-55-mile race, I think. And in 1981, he identified a case of a woman who had followed the advice given to her before the race by the marketing material in the companies, and she developed this condition called hyponatremia. And so it was 30 years ago that he set out on that journey to try and show 
that the advice that was being given to athletes might actually be harmful because it was causing them to drink too much. Everyone at that stage was scared about drinking too little because, of course, dehydration, we'd been told, was this evil that we had to absolutely avoid at all costs, that it could, A, affect our performance, and B, kill us if we if we got too dehydrated. And, and I think what, what was then shown as a result of his work and, and then the work of many others around the world, in New Zealand, Australia, North America, at the Boston Marathon, is that this, this notion that dehydration is harmful cannot be backed up by any scientific evidence. The vast majority of endurance athletes finish events in a dehydrated state, yet they don't have any clinical signs or problems. And the athletes who are most affected clinically are the ones who haven't lost the weight. So if anything, dehydration is a sign that the person is probably better off. And so so the sports drink industry is now, I think, rightly coming under pressure because it positioned itself as a medicine for many, many years. It was basically saying that if you take this product, you will be healthier, better performing. And that's a medicinal quality. But it was done without the necessary evidence. And now suddenly people's paradigms are being challenged. And I think it's a good thing. And it'll be interesting to see how the sports drink industry responds to that because there certainly seems to be, at least from my perspective, and I admit that I'm somewhat in a bubble here because we've always had the perspective that sports drinks might not be all they've they've advocated themselves to be, but it seems to me that there's growing sentiment or recognition of that fact and and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the the market responds to the to the consumer now and um It'd be remiss of me not to get your expertise on um, Castor Semenya before we um, close this. You know, you've thought about it a lot, and it's a it's a hot topic and a controversial one. And you're yeah. a South African athlete who's carrying the flag for you. So, just fill mm. the readers in on the short version of that issue, so to speak, and tell us about uh, that, Ross. Yeah. So, 2009 World Championships, um, unknown athlete. I mean, she was unknown even to most of us in South Africa. She was a 19-year-old, suddenly finds herself in the Berlin uh, World Championships. She's winning her semi-final, and it's after that semi-final of the Women's 800 that there's this leak that this athlete, Castor Semenya, has to undergo a gender verification test. And, of course, there's an uproar and all kinds of political and ethical and moral and physiological debates enter the fray. But she goes on to win that title. And, of course, then when, when you have a gold medalist, who everyone knew was running under a cloud, suddenly suddenly performs like she did. I think the spotlight got even brighter. And the the subsequent sort of fallout, and I, I use that word um, deliberately, is complex to try and untangle. It's quite clear that there was an issue there. If there wasn't, the IAAF would have been very happy to say, sorry about that, case closed, let her run. And they they didn't do it. So it was quite clear that there was something there. Quite what they did about it, I don't know. It took it took 10 months from the moment that she was first tested or questioned until she was able to compete again. And the only way that I can explain those 10 months is to say that there has to have been some kind of medical intervention which then satisfied the IAAF's um, requirements for her to continue to race as a female. Now, we know what those guidelines are. The IAAF issued them again in 2011, and they now say that anyone who is recognized by law as being a female may compete as a female provided they have androgen or testosterone levels that are lower than the male range. So again, I know I'm reading between the lines, but this is all we can do here. 
is that it looks as though what's happened is they've tested Semenya, they've found that there was some issue there, they've then worked with her, and I know that they were working with her quite a, a, a great deal at the end of 2009, and they must now be satisfied that her testosterone levels are below the male range, and so that theoretical advantage that she might have had before is no longer there. And so if that's the case, then good luck to her and congratulations. She carries the flag, as you mentioned. She'll run in, uh, in London for us. She's one of our best medal chances, although her recent form um, probably makes me think that she'll, she's highly unlikely to medal. But it's such a controversial issue because we have these categories for men and women. And in theory, it's nice and simple. Men on the left, women on the right, race against one another. But you get occasionally these conditions, and whether it's chromosomal or hormonal, you get some individuals who are genetically male but who develop as females, and no one actually knows what to do about them. And I think if there's one legacy that she will leave is she will have made us aware of how little we actually understand about what we're doing about intersex conditions because no one actually knows. Was there an advantage? Is that advantage now gone if she's lowered the testosterone levels? How long would the advantage persist for? It's all just a host of unanswerable questions in this sort of social, political, moral, ethical backdrop. It's a juicy topic, but uh, if she wins a medal, it'll be a big one. But I don't think that's going to happen. And on that vein, Ross, Oscar Pistorius is running in the Olympics, and uh, tell us your thoughts there. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> funny that South Africa's produced these two, um, <laughs> if, if you had to list the two most controversial athletes in the last 20 years, the funny thing is they're both from South Africa. I don't know why that is. It's not like we're doing it on purpose, just so the rest of the world knows. Oscar Pistorius was, five years ago, uh, announced his intentions to run in able-bodied 400-meter competition. Those who don't know him, uh, he's a double amputee, uh, born without fibulas, and so his, uh, his legs were amputated below the knee before he learned to walk. So he learned to walk on prosthetic limbs. He then started playing sport, which is quite a remarkable story. He went to the Paralympics in 2004, was something of a sensation there, and then has since now gone on to run the 400-meter event. Um, from the beginning, I felt that he shouldn't be competing because theoretically knowing what is fairly easy to find out about the carbon fiber blades that he uses, their, their mass is so light. I mean, they weigh three kilograms compared to the human limb below the knee, which is probably about six to eight kilograms. So he's got this huge mass saving on each foot. Plus, those carbon fiber blades return so much more energy than Achilles tendons do. That's been measured, and the, the carbon fiber stores and returns 92% of its energy compared to about 40 to 50% for a human. And carbon fiber doesn't fatigue in the same way that muscle and tendon does. So those three factors together led me to say, four years ago that I didn't think that he should be allowed to run because there's a concern around how big an impact technology has. There was then a whole host of debates and scientific studies done, the first of which found that he uses less oxygen than able-bodied sprinters. Now that's important because if those three factors, the energy return, the mass of the carbon fiber and the fatigue, if those three factors are true and if the theory was correct, the prediction is that he would use less oxygen, and that's exactly what was found. It was challenged, however. He had his own uh, research done, and it would take me 20 minutes to explain what happened in that research study. 
But he was able to show that when you compared him to long-distance runners, he wasn't physiologically different. He uses the same oxygen as an elite or sub-elite marathon runner. And it was based on that evidence that the Court of Arbitration decided that they would clear him to compete because there was insufficient evidence to say he had an advantage. What then happened was one of his own scientists came out 18 months later. Presumably there had been some kind of a moratorium that prevented him from speaking sooner. But 18 months later, one of his own scientists came out and said that he's estimating that the advantage is 12 seconds. Now, a 400-meter race, 12 seconds is the difference between a world-class runner and an average high school runner. So I think he probably overestimated it, but he explained it biomechanically as a consequence that Pistorius is able to move his legs so much faster than other runners because they are so light. So he can reposition his limbs faster even than the men's 100-meter champion in the Olympic Games. It's just Peter Wayand, who's the scientist, described it as being off the biological charts. The consequence of moving your legs so fast is that you no longer need to apply as much force to the ground because speed during sprinting is a combination of how quickly you move your legs and how forcefully you push off the ground. And so because Pistorius has got this never-seen-before leg speed, he doesn't need the same athletic power generation off the ground. And Peter Wayne's argument was, and I agree with him, is that the, the, that means that he needs less, less athleticism in order to run the world-class speeds that he does, and as a consequence, he was getting this big advantage. So again, I, I don't think that he should be running because of the advantage. I can appreciate people who are saying that he should run despite the advantage because he does so much good, he's so inspirational, he's a role model, and that's absolutely true. He is all those things. But what I don't agree with is the idea that there's no advantage. So it's either don't let him run because there's an advantage, or let him run despite the advantage, but I can't see the third option that there's no advantage. The evidence and the theory was just too strong in the big picture to say that there was an advantage there. That's the end of part one of this podcast, and you can find the second part on the website. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.